for the week of March 10th, 2016. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In this episode, we'll look at the impressive growth trends for storage in the U.S. and forecast how the market will evolve. Then China continues its crackdown on coal use. Is the country set to hit its climate targets early? Finally, Vivint Solar pulled out of its merger with Sun Edison this week. We'll have the latest on that saga. I am Stephen Lacey in Boston. Catherine Hamilton is in Washington. And Jigger Shah is in New York City in their respective places. Catherine, how are you? Doing great. It's beautiful here right now. Is it like 80 there? Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's touching around 70 here. Jigger, how's it going over there in New York? Doing well, doing well. We definitely have the advent of spring. Also in our Boston office is Ravi Mangani, GTM Researchers Senior Storage Analyst. So if Catherine is right, and storage is the bacon of the grid, making everything better, then Ravi is your five-star server dishing it up on a silver platter. He's here to help us understand What's on the menu in America's storage market? Ravi, welcome. How are you? Good, sir. How are you? Excellent. If anyone out there doesn't understand that joke, you'll just have to revisit our back catalog. This week marked the release of our 2015 Energy Storage Monitor, produced in partnership with the Energy Storage Association, and Ravi was a lead author on that. In 2015, U.S. storage power capacity grew 243%, and total energy capacity grew nearly 90%. So, Ravi, where are we at? What kind of numbers are we deploying when we talk about that kind of growth? We're starting from a very small base, but the growth is impressive. Give us a breakdown of the numbers that we tracked for 2015. Absolutely right. And uh, before we get started, in fact, uh, I'll probably share an anecdote which uh, I got reminded because of your analogy there, Stephen. Uh, Back in the day when I was uh, a studious little boy thinking, you know, whether I should take up engineering or or on some other profession uh, as a high schooler, I I was very tempted to, you know, take up uh, being a chef. So I completely buy that analogy. Thank you so much. Really? (laughs) Anyhow, so uh, coming back to our numbers that we've uh, seen uh, over the past few quarters, um, as as you pointed out, we, we you're, like you said, right, we are starting off a very small base. And in, in some ways, uh, what we are seeing today is, is some sort of a second wave of energy storage back in 2009 through, I would say, 2013 or so. Uh, all the, uh, you know, sort of activities uh, related to storage were directly or indirectly connected to the ARA funding. What we are seeing today uh, is, you know, move away from ARA funding and and uh, towards actual market applications. Although again, they are pretty, uh, you know, sort of uh, aggregated towards one or two markets, depending on which segment you are in. Uh, but to just recap some of the numbers, uh, we saw about 187 megawatts of uh, front of the meter storage. Uh, a big portion of it, about 165 megawatts, uh, came from a single, you know, wholesale market territory. That's uh, PJM. Uh, in behind the meter segment, again, uh, uh, you know, we, we saw about 34 megawatts of uh, total behind the meter uh, storage deployed. Uh, most of it in in CNI space, a uh, little little bit in in the residential space as well. And again, we saw you know California being the largest market, uh, about you know 12 times larger than the second largest market in the in, in the behind the meter segment. Uh, 
So we are still uh, sort of focused on one or two applications uh, in in the wholesale market, for instance, and and uh, on on the behind the meter side, uh, still very much being driven by uh, demand charge reduction in CNI space. But nonetheless, it's it's been a it's been we've seen massive growth. Uh, like you said, we, we tripled about we about triple uh, the total number of uh, rather the annual deployments in uh, 2015 from the prior year. So you mentioned era funding. During that era, there were a lot of different storage technologies that were being fun- that were being financed and supported by the government. What's different about this wave of deployment is that it's almost all lithium ion, right? Right. It's it's it, most of it is lithium ion. In fact, ninety six percent of it is lithium ion, which is uh, you know way higher than what we saw in, in 2013, 2014 period. Again, uh, a lot of the projects back in uh, in those two years were uh, sort of uh, still the the last few uh, projects being deployed through ARA funding. So what we are seeing uh, is uh, you know a movement away from just you know projects that are pilot scale you know, for testing or, or validating technologies to now actually validating applications, right? Uh, so the, the second wave that I that I mentioned earlier, this is the second wave where we are seeing uh, applications being validated. And obviously the third phase would, would be when we start to move away from uh, a single application or, 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 or you know, key one, one application towards using storage as a, uh, as, as a very versatile grid asset. And, and then we'd be, you know, talking about testing business models and, and, and uh, growing multi Folds. Ravi, aren't we getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, though? I mean, basically, you've got a PJM marketplace, which has not been replicated by anybody, really, nationwide. And you've got um, the California's SGIP program, which has also not really been replicated nationwide, right? So are we? Are you saying that you guys really see um, this replication coming, that, you know, someone like Massachusetts or New York or somebody's going to put up a billion dollars to you know, of subsidies or someone like Neepool is going to go beyond their 60 megawatt, um, you know, sort of pilot and actually or MISO or somebody like that? Sure. Uh, that's a great question, Jigar. And, and uh, perhaps the my tone sounded that we are getting slightly ahead of ourselves. Uh, but uh, the 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 markets that you pointed out and, and the type of incentive structures that exist in certain markets are, are you know, sort of pale uh, against what we are seeing in California, right? So, for instance, New York does uh, is moving forward and, and storage is going to be an important piece with Rev Initiative. All, the, all we are seeing right now are some demonstration projects in New York. Uh, they also have a demand management program, uh, particularly Con Edison in the New York City area, uh, which will see, again, few uh, behind the meter as well as some front of the meter uh, storage projects deployed. Uh, the, and, and then the other ISO markets are are definitely far behind PJM as it relates to incorporating uh, 755 and 784 orders. But we're starting to see that some, some thawing take place in markets like MISO where they have very uh, been pretty open to uh, receive uh, you know feedback and comments on how storage can participate uh, in in different uh, wholesale market activities so yes we are uh, probably you know the, the timelines are, are getting uh, sort of merged here but uh, the, uh, these signs indicate that we we are moving towards an environment where uh, storage is not necessarily an afterthought per se uh, of course it, it's going to take time effort you know a uh, lot of innovation on the technology side as well as business uh, you know model side to actually move away from you know move towards actual megawatts of deployments in these different markets that we're talking about 
But yeah, Ravi, I've always been up to my eyeballs in uh, policy, of course, and storage policy in particular, and certainly looking at additional ancillary services markets, um, you know, as you look at the frequency regulation market being potentially tapped out, like what are some other things we can do um, on the wholesale side? And then on the state side, remember California has the procurement targets um, or mandates, I guess you could look at them as not just the SGIP program. So they really have targets by which they have, that they have to meet by utility. So on the state side, having procurement and planning processes built in, but I'm also curious, um, you had a piece in the report about tax incentives and how the tax incentives for solar can potentially help storage. And I just would love to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. So, right, uh, there are two different activities that have uh, that have already occurred or are in the process of occurring uh, as it relates to the tax uh, incentives. Uh, so, you know, of course, we all know that in back in December 2015, uh, the IDC and, and BDC were, uh, were extended for uh, renewable assets uh, uh, by five years. So uh, that, of course, has brought in, uh, uh, you know, uh, or rather has raised our expectations in terms of how the solar and wind markets are, are going to continue to grow in, in the U.S. Uh, and as it relates to what's going on with storage, right, uh, pertaining to ITC, uh, the the policy is not clear, right? If if you look at the the language that IRS has used uh, as it relates to uh, what I call what is in Section Forty Eight uh, of the of the tax credits uh, document, is you know this notion of uh, a qualifying energy property, and and the, and the definition is relatively vague uh, as it relates to storage. So the what it means is in in certain instances storage already is eligible for itc today uh but it's it's not it there isn't a uh, a, a clear mechanism and a clear definition uh that irs has put forward what is changing however or hopefully you know what would the industry would expect or hope would to change is uh that the irs uh, back in october 2015 published a a a, a notice uh, where they've solicited uh, response from the different stakeholder communities in, 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 in the storage and I would argue in the renewable space uh, to get more clarity around uh, this this definition of what's a qualifying energy uh, property and and uh, in particular they've been very specific in terms of asking you know how can storage uh, and under what such situations can storage participate yeah so, so we, we often get ahead of ourselves here when it comes to talking about storage I mean there's a, a pretty major hype cycle going on but this IRS ruling, clarity on the tax credit and the uh, a more efficient process to allow storage developers to take advantage of the ITC would be huge, right? Yes, certainly it's going to help the the storage community to grow, right? Uh, there there are two, of course, two paths here. One path is well, three actually. Uh, one path is that IRS comes back with with a definitive answer on you know whether if uh, if storage qualifies as a as an itc eligible asset and if so then then it it reduces the burden on, on, at the end of the developers having to apply uh, for eligibility through you know private rulings as they've been doing so far the these the second path could be that itc irs may come back and say nope storage is not going to qualify uh, as any uh, as as a tax eligible or tax incentive eligible uh, asset in that case obviously the the industry would would have to figure out you know what to do uh, uh, 
and and the third option is is the status quo right uh, that there won't be any more clarity uh, than what already exists in in the in the uh, in, in the definition in which case we will probably still continue to see the the type of growth that we've seen as it relates to solar plus storage or wind plus storage projects so Ravi, let me just back up for a second on that. I, you know, I think just to put this in context, right, 175, 70, 87 megawatts at roughly a million dollars a megawatt is only about a $200 million market, right? So we're talking about a pretty small market. I think on the other side, on the solar plus storage thing, I mean, we've looked at a lot of deals. And I have to say that the economics really aren't that compelling. I mean, when you look in Hawaii, the cost of solar plus storage has not come down enough to really make that market compelling. I think, you know, even in San Diego, where you've got very interesting sort of rate tariffs by which to do it, it's like a tiny market. sgg e is a very small market, right? So, I'm, I mean, are you guys seeing that if the 30% tax credit passes, that there's suddenly going to be a billion dollar solar plus storage industry unlocked? No, that's a great question, Jigger. Uh, and uh, the, the short answer is is yes. Uh, although, again, I come back to the timeline, right? I mean, it's not a market that's going to open up overnight, even if the economics suddenly uh, look attractive for you know just one or two markets that you pointed out. Uh, I, I guess it as again, right? Economics are, are probably just the the first hurdle that that you have first important hurdle, I should say, that you have to cross to make make an you know grow from a few hundred million dollar market to a billion dollar market uh, there would be other steps that would be needed right I, I think there's still lack of understanding or lack of awareness in the uh, in, in the in the customer base uh, in, in the cons- amongst the consumers on how these uh, these projects can can pan out right so the 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 short answer is yes we do it you know if if this does indeed go forward uh, where storage is included as a very explicit uh, uh, recipient of of any kind of tax credits, uh, we we expect that uh, about half a gigawatt of of uh, additional solar plus storage or wind plus storage projects would get deployed uh, through the next four years, and and that uh, is is definitely you know sort of doing that same math uh, gets to gets to a billion dollar plus market. And that actually is a really interesting trend because it brings behind the meter systems on par with large scale grid scale in front of the meter systems by 2019-2020. Right. And and one other uh, factor that we that we haven't talked about yet uh, on the show is uh, that more than half the number of states in the U.S. are already looking at different ways in which they should move away from uh, or, or reform, I should say, to, to be correct, uh, their existing net energy metering policies. So depending on how those changes plan out, uh, what we saw happen in Nevada and Arizona uh, has has made solar-only economics less favorable. You could argue that, you know, adding storage could could in some shape or form uh, at, 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 uh, at, at, you know, at certain cost can, in fact, make the attract uh, the economics of solar plus storage more attractive. Active. Uh, so the the changes in in rate structures in in different markets, you know, in combination with net energy metering uh, reforms, or in or just you know generally speaking more uh, time dependent uh, tariffs, uh, I think those two are going to see uh, are, are going to drive a lot of growth in behind the meter segment. The the other driver, although which again is in, in very early stages, even in this in markets like California and New York, is this whole notion of how can we look at uh, behind the meter assets and aggregation 
as as a as a useful participant uh, on on the grid, uh, providing either you know grid services uh, uh, which which today are not monetizable, or in in certain cases even participating in wholesale markets. It's it's funny. I mean, the U.S. is definitely one of the most sophisticated and fastest growing storage markets in the world, but uh, people are still kind of stumbling around in the dark trying to figure all this stuff out. Yeah, I had a question, Ravi, about um, technologies. So you go through a lot of the mergers and acquisitions. There have been a lot of really interesting partnerships of developers and technologists. And based on what Jeff St. John and I saw at ARPA-E and some of the um, companies that are in incubators like New York Acre has a company called Voltaic, which is battery management. Thinking about what are all of those support services and other types of businesses that are going to be created as offshoots um, that are really necessary based on these partnerships and acquisitions. I'm just curious what, what you're seeing on the technology front. Absolutely right, and uh, as you point out, Catherine, on the technology front, we can again, you know, think about uh, two two sort of uh, areas in which we are seeing uh, development in technologies. One is actually the storage technologies themselves. So we are talking about batteries here, and and here, and of course, in, in just on the battery front, we we've seen uh, you know significant cost reductions. Uh, purely coming from, you know, uh, efficiencies in manufacturing so far. So we're not necessarily seeing any, you know, uh, huge step downs because of technology innovations in lithium ion. But then there are other technologies that are seeing this uh, the sort of are piggybacking on, on the on the growing opportunities in storage and and uh, and, and are sort of advancing their uh, their, their sort of product uh, platforms or and and uh, uh, in, in getting more efficient uh, in terms of performance as well as uh, reducing the cost. The the other other side of things, uh, as as you pointed out, companies like Voltaic are working on we're coming at from a from a software angle. Uh, again, you know, end of the day, batteries themselves are are quote unquote dumb. So you still need uh, some kind of you know software platform or layers of different software platforms that need to uh, sit on top of these uh, these dumb batteries, if you may, uh, to uh, help them. Of course, you know, keep them safe. Uh, within their, you know, uh, key sort of performance uh, parameters, uh, so that they don't blow up. But more importantly, also see how these systems can be optimized, uh, and and communicate with uh, with with this this broader grid. So uh, the the development that we are seeing, particularly on you know, syst- you know, sort of system integration and 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 software management, uh, has has been pretty uh, interesting so far. Uh, interesting in 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 the sense that we are seeing technolo- technological solutions that that seem to you know uh, seem to work. Yet there there kind of more applications looking in need for actual deployments, right? Uh, so I, I guess we'll we'll be playing a bit of catch up as it relates to what's going on in uh, this sort of mismatch and and you know the growth in the software management systems and and how we can find uh, appropriate markets and applications where uh, where they could see actual deployments and and uh, and management. So just continuing my you know sort of role as Debbie Downer here, if if you're talking about 500 megawatts over four years, let's call that 125 million dollars of revenue per year. And you've got green charge networks and STEM and advanced microgrid and JLM and all these other companies. Is there any chance that any of those companies could possibly be profitable in the next four years on just $125 million of total revenue to share per year? 
Uh, I, I guess uh, the, the numbers are, are in line with what you've said, although uh, I should add that we uh, expect that, you know, from 2016 through 2020, the behind the meter segment is going to grow about, you know, 60% uh, uh, compounded average for the next four years. So we are not we are not just talking about few tens of megawatts or a couple hundred of megawatts. But uh, in fact, by 2020, we expect that uh, the total behind the meter market is, is going to be about 800 megawatts or so. So uh, annually. So it, to, to come to your question now, uh, of course, right? Uh, again, uh, I hate to sort of give the analogy of, of what happened, what's happened in the solar industry, but but that's it's inevitable. Probably, it's in, inevitable, right? It's, it's the closest sort of proxy to uh, to to what what we've seen in, in this, you know, the clean energy, uh, uh, you know, market space is is there are going to be some consolidations there are going to be companies that are going to do better than others and 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 there are going to be some winners and losers the the question is you know uh, what are the key sort of characteristics that that are going to govern uh, which companies are going to be successful well that brings me to my final question and that is the vendor landscape is not terribly sophisticated you have a lot of pilot programs you have a lot of partnerships we have seen some big names get into the storage industry sunpower has been talking about this for a couple of years Enernock is has developed a partnership with STEM, uh, and so in the CNI market and in the residential market, there is a lot of hype around solar plus storage. And Jigger's right; the activity is pretty minimal, and the economics are slim. So when you look at all these partnerships and announcements and excitement, how do you square that with what's actually happening with this stuff? Right. So uh, there's definitely a lot of hype. And uh, the, the question is, is the market going to follow or, or are we going to just see this, this you know, extended uh, sort of period of hype cycle? So, uh, yes, the we are seeing some, you know, big players enter the market. Like, uh, for instance, you know, we, we saw sort of Johnson Controls join the party a couple of months ago. Uh, uh, GE has been touting their, their this, you know, the, the, this movement towards their CNI-focused uh, current business and, and storage being a part of it. So yes, we. I mean, we, almost everyone. Absolutely right. So, uh, like like Catherine said, it's you know it's it's a bacon uh, that that makes everything better, but but I, I guess in terms of sophistication and and what we should expect, I guess it it's still going to be uh, at least the next couple of three years. We are still we are still talking about you know limited number of you know mega you know megawatt scale projects or uh, you know multi megawatt scale projects which are already in the pipeline by the same three or four uh, developers if you may uh, on, on behind the meter side yes there is a room for a lot of innovation and, and growth so I, I guess there's opportunity for a lot of companies to develop I, I, the, the the question is you know which ones are going to actually going to make it so the report is our US energy storage monitor it was produced in association with the Energy Storage Association. Ravi Mangani is our senior storage analyst at GTM Research. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, folks. Over the last few years, China has made an effort to curb the burning of coal, mostly because of horrible pollution and social unrest. But climate change has become an important factor. And last December, the country agreed to cut emissions by 40 percent by 2020 compared to 2005 levels. So that target was historic, and it was the first time China agreed to cuts as part of the UN negotiations. But they're actually kind of low. Some expect the country to surpass its emissions reductions target well ahead of 2020. And part of the reason is because of the government's crackdown on coal. That crackdown, and also an economic slowdown recently, caused coal use to drop by 3.4% last year, according to the Chinese government. 
While we should definitely be skeptical of these figures, many experts do believe we're witnessing a significant shift in China's energy market. Catherine, do you think China's going to live up to its climate promises given what we've seen with coal use and expansion of renewables? Uh, so it's a little bit tricky because it is an unusual economy. As someone said to me, I called someone from the Sierra Club who's been working on this for a long time. Um, you know, it's hard to kind of know because they don't have a market economy. But, you know, everybody thought they would be exporting lots of coal into China, and that's just not going to happen. I mean, they have air quality issues, um, and and there really does not look to be any end in sight in developing renewables. They put 32.5 gigawatts of wind online last year, and even though they've permitted over 200 new coal plants, there is no reason to think that those will be built or run. And the, the Sierra Club contact told me, you know, if, if it hasn't peaked there, already, if coal hasn't peaked there already, then it'll at least be flat. So I think there is de- there are definite signs that it'll be declining and continue to decline for a number of reasons, although it is still hard to see behind the curtain. I'm a little bit uh, skeptical of Chinese government figures. They have made claims about reduced coal use in the past that have uh, shown not to be true, and they've talked a lot about uh, how effectively they're dealing with air pollution and anybody with a basic monitor can see that they have uh, largely failed at cleaning up their skies. So I think we should be somewhat cautious about these numbers. But from what I've seen, a lot of experts do believe that we are seeing a potential peak or at least a flattening, as you said, Catherine. Yeah, and you know they did all of these um, state-owned companies that would build steel and concrete and create jobs really they've created millions of jobs and those they're going to it looks like they're going to have to lay off 15% of their workforce because most of the coal right now is being used on industrial production and that's shifting they're st- they're starting to shift away from doing those industries um to other types of industries and so They need to come up with other ways to put people to work, and I could see that shifting to renewables. The government announced that it wanted to close, I think, half of the coal mines throughout China. They've uh, shut down a lot of steel production, and yeah, that's millions of workers. So there's actually an interesting dilemma here. On one hand, you have social unrest already due to pollution and land issues when building new coal plants. On the other hand, you have potential social unrest due to the central government's plans to shut down mining and steel operations and lay off millions of workers in an effort to control prices of coal and control coal use. So it's it's kind of an interesting situation that China is in right now. Well, you know, this is some this is a fight we've been having for the better part of 3 years. Um you know, basically forecasters who work for the IEA or EIA or BP World Energy Review basically I think just felt too embarrassed to to tell the truth when they knew back then three years ago that China was basically stalling its coal program. And, well, uh, I don't think that we knew three years ago. No, Most we of the absolutely knew. Stephen, we all knew that it was happening. I, mean, I do I said not it on think stage so. At, I started on stage at Platts, and literally everybody was saying, Jigger, you're absolutely right. That's all the data that we're finding too. But the problem is, is you end up having this sort of like reflexive action problem with all of these guys where they – sort of just have to, you know, people pay good money for these models. So they don't want to show that they were way off three years ago. So they've shown every year 
that their curves have come down, their curves have come down, their curves have come down, and now it's like, oh crap, it actually peaked back in 2014, right? I mean, the thing about China is half of its coal plants were burning coal so inefficiently that they needed to shut them down anyway just because it was an inefficient way of using coal. And they were throwing coal fly ash into the water streams. They were having all sorts of environmental damages and problems. And so a lot of this stuff is just stuff that we we had all predicted three, four years back. Justin Guay has actually got great reports on this from the Packard Foundation that folks should look up because it's just it's just mind numbing that this is common information. Yeah, they have way more coal production than they need. I mean, they have, as Jigger said, they're only at 50 percent utilization or something on their fleet. One thing that we might want to just pay attention to is their cap and trade program, which is sort of this experiment that they're trying that, um, you know, I, when I asked my friend at the Sierra Club, he said, you know, this is something that you don't need to have a market economy to enable to work. So I'm kind of curious to see what happens with that program. Yeah, and I, I mean, Jigger, you might have been talking about this in 2011, 2012, but I think uh, the majority of people did not see this coming. It was only after that time that we saw the cap-and-trade program that Catherine mentioned. It's been only in the last few months that China has really expressed interest in developing somewhat deep targets. Um, it's only been in the last two years that China started shutting down coal plants en masse because of social unrest. So... I disagree with your assessment that most people were calling this. Well, I mean, the data is pretty clear. It's not my assessment. It's the actual facts on the ground, right? The fact of the matter is that the forecasters basically, you know, didn't want to embarrass themselves by by reporting the data accurately. And so they waited, you know, had a three-year transition period where every year they revised their numbers, you know, while saying, oh, China coal you know, usage is going to be way up. Even like two years ago, we had press releases that China still has 300 new coal plants that they're building. Bollocks. I mean, like for every coal plant that China's building right now, they're shutting down two of them, right? And so we knew this information way back when. NRDC, Sierra Club, others have full-time staff in China. This is not like, you know, we didn't have information. It's just, you know, like this is the thing about experts, right? There's this great TED talk about experts and how people basically just sort of take what they have to say hook, line, and sinker without actually checking the facts first. Um, China has been telegraphing this for several years. This is not new information, mostly because um, on the margin they were importing very expensive coal from Australia, which they couldn't afford to do anymore at $100 a ton, right? And you're seeing the same thing is true with India. It's not because the Indians are, you know, pro-solar that they're shutting down coal plants or or building far fewer of them. It's because it's really hard to build coal plants in India. The water consumption for coal plants is through the roof. The amount of free infrastructure that the Indian government needs to build around port infrastructure, rail infrastructure, seizing land from local communities, all of that stuff is politically untenable today. One sector that did not see it coming was the U.S. coal sector. So we saw a very aggressive push to build coal export facilities on the West Coast uh, in 2010, 2011. There were some pretty intense battles um, and they're still ongoing. But now China isn't taking as much of our coal and those coal export facilities, which were really the last option for the U.S. coal industry to expand, are looking less and less attractive. Catherine, when you talk to the Sierra Club, what is your sense for how China alone has changed the battles over these uh, export facilities? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, like you said, people thought they would be exporting lots of coal to China, and it's just not going to happen. I mean, China just doesn't have any need for it. It would be economically um, unfeasible and also just untenable from a power production standpoint to do that. So I mean, the, the sense is that's just not going to happen. Yeah, the costs are just not there. I mean, David Roberts has a great piece on this, you know, our, our good friend uh, from last week that shows that, in fact, thermal coal was never the goal. The goal was always met coal. Most of these coal plants, the coal mining companies like Alpha, Natural Resources and others are bankrupt because they made huge bets in 2011, 2012 on met coal facilities, which often, you know, sell for four or five times more money than thermal coal. Um, Just and- a reminder, met coal is for steel production. Yeah, and the prices of met coal have, have plummeted because China is no longer, you know, using 40% of the world's met coal. So let me flip the question back to you, Jigger. The first question that I started with with Catherine, do you think that China is going to live up to its climate promises? Of course. I mean, the reason why the Paris deal happened is because this stuff is actually more cost effective than any other option that they have. I just think that like people are just not coming to grips with the fact that the resource revolution is in full swing. I mean, including Bill Gates, right? I mean, when you think about solar or wind or or even thinking about energy efficiency and fuel economy, these are not things that people are doing for environmental purposes anymore. China's doing, you know, some of these things because they just are tired of working with African dictators that are tough to do business with. And they're finding that a lot of these measures are way more cost effective than working with those African dictators. So let's talk about Sun Edison now. Uh, Almost eight months after Sun Edison unveiled plans to acquire the leading residential PV installer Vivint Solar, the deal is dead. Vivint sent a letter to Sun Edison this week terminating the deal, blaming Sun Edison for breaching the terms of the acquisition. Vivint then filed suit alleging that Sun Edison delayed the deal even after agreeing to renegotiated terms. Here's a juicy quote from that suit. Almost immediately after the deal was inked, with its stock price starting to fall, Sun Edison began exhibiting classic signs of buyer's remorse. After months of foot dragging and double talk, Sun Edison admitted to Vivint Solar that defendants would not perform on the deal as agreed, unquote. The questionable engagement of these two companies did not lead to marriage. Jigger, a lot of people, including you, wanted to see Sun Edison pull out of this deal. I'm sure that there were some that were relieved that Vivint killed it, but now we go on to a legal dispute, um, and some believe it hints that Sun Edison is headed toward bankruptcy. Do you still think the fact that the merger failed is a good thing, given the way it's playing out now? Yeah, I mean, so the I don't know that Sun Edison wanted to back out of it from the first day. Um, I mean, the reason it was forced to back out of it recently was because the loans that they had, you know, tried to secure from Goldman Sachs and others were were rescinded, you know, last month, and so um, they they couldn't raise the cash to to do it. But I just I don't know what Sun Edison could have done. You know, I think Sun Edison's at a point right now where, given that it's got this huge load of debt on it, um, um, I just don't know how Sun Edison could possibly have closed this deal. The, the the weird thing about this deal is that when you read the actual uh, merger documents, um, Sun Edison had no outs out of the deal, which is odd. In almost all merger agreements, you have some outs. You have like you know, with the payment of a hundred million dollars, you can get out of this deal. There were there was no way for Sun Edison to get out of the deal, which was, you know, in my opinion, you know, very a poor negotiation by Sun Edison. Yeah, Jigger, I was going to ask you a question. 
do you think this is bad for both parties or better for both parties? Who who comes out in, in a better place or do, do either one of them? Well, you know, it's not it's not that easy to um, to answer the question. You know, there's some folks who believe that the reason why SunEdison stock price went down to begin with was because of this Vivint merger. And, you know, certainly their timing works out, although I'm not sure that um, the causation was there. Um, but I think Vivint was already a pretty weak player to begin with. I mean, their stock price was really not doing well when Sun Edison announced the merger and uh, or acquisition. And so Blackstone, I think, is going to be the big loser out of this because Blackstone's going to get stuck with a stock price that's trading below the um, the IPO price, and um, you know, and they're going to have to probably inject more money into Vivint to figure out how to put it back on firm footing. I mean, there is a case to be made that solar demand will be so high that Vivint could see organic growth that put the company back on track. Yeah, I mean, well, the case could be made that Sun Edison could see organic growth such that they don't go into bankruptcy. But I, you know, I think that, you know, I think that this is really about how each company is run um, fundamentally, right? And and whether they actually have the fundamental skills to be able to do uh, what they're doing. And you know, I think in Sun Edison's case, they've shown a lack of their ability to focus um, and a lack of their ability to show the discipline around paying the right amount of money for for companies that they're acquiring. And in Vivint's case, I think they've shown that they're not actually that great at project finance. And so, you know, part of what Vivint wanted out of this transaction was Sun Edison's expertise in project finance, which they're now, now not going to get. And so now the question is whether Vivint actually can backfill that um, effectively, uh, like Sungevity recently did with Apollo and others. The market reaction was positive initially. Both Vivint and Sun Edison stock shot up, but now they're still hovering around all-time lows and um, trending downward as of the recording of this podcast. This legal battle will be really interesting as it plays out in Delaware, so we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. Okay, let's tell our listeners something they do not know. Catherine, what do you got this week? <laughs> well, I know uh, our podcast is the most important, but for those of you uh, who once you've gone through the entire however many podcasts we've done so far, if you want to look for another one, um, I just started listening to the Ezra Klein show, and it's really good. I've listened to two so far. One is his interview with Bill Gates, uh, which Jigger you would truly love, and the other is his interview with um, Theta Scopecall. I know Scopecall, I've said her name wrong, who's a political scientist. It was a fascinating interview, and he's just, he's a really good interviewer, and he kind of lets them just go and talk, and uh, it's been very enjoyable to listen to. Yeah, I actually listened to The Weeds, which I think is even better with um, Matt Iglesias, and uh, um, and so that that one's really really good. Um, it, it goes on forever; it's like an hour and twenty minutes. No, I know that's my problem with that one. I like that one too, and it's more of like what we do, which is a little more give and take with several different people. So the Ezra Klein show is more of a different kind of shtick, but yeah, they're both good. I back that recommendation up. I like both shows. Jigger, tell us something we do not know. Well, a couple of years ago, I met with Ernie Moniz and, you know, told him that we were going to hit 20,000 megawatts this year in solar installations, and he said it was impossible. Green Tech Media came out with a prediction that we're going to hit 16,000 megawatts this year. I think we'll still beat that handily, but I just want to tell Secretary Moniz to stick it. Wow. Well, we have uh, Dr. Dave Danielson of the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy from the DOE coming on the show 
who has been a big supporter of solar, renewables, and uh, grid integration technologies. So that'll be an interesting conversation. Yeah, he's fantastic. As Trump continues to pick up delegates and he's leading the Republican field as of now, he's, uh, he's picked up a, a staunch solar advocate. Debbie Dooley, the leader of the Green Tea Party, who came on the show last year to talk about her fight for solar access, has come out as a very strong supporter of Trump. I guess this is a less of a reflection of Trump's stance on solar, because he's dismissed it a couple times in the past as unproven, and, and more of a reflection of the anger at mainstream Republicans and those seen as part of the establishment. Um, you know, I'd love to see some polling on Trump supporters and solar. My guess is that there are a lot of people like Debbie Dooley who see the technology as a way to tear down the establishment, in this case, utility monopolies who, who support Trump. Uh, and then, meanwhile, you have seen tech CEOs, including Elon Musk, meet with top Republicans to discuss how to topple Trump. Well, Trump may not be bad for clean energy. There may be a zillion other reasons he'd be bad, but um, I, I don't necessarily think he'd be bad on our stuff. Yeah, I mean, just to like say it really clearly on my side, I am scared to death of Ted Cruz. I would take Trump any day of the week over Ted Cruz. That guy will literally dismantle institutions that I hold dear for decades to come. That marks the end of our show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher Radio, any podcast app of your choice. Email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We love getting your emails. We get a lot of feedback about the show, and we pass that around. So uh, please feel free to send us your comments, your questions, some story ideas, etc. All right, well, Catherine, have a good week and weekend. Nice talking to you, as always. Yeah, you too. Jigger, same to you. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. With uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Thank you.